listening to First Church Charlotte. I love what I feel in this house tonight. I believe whatever you need, the presence of the Lord will meet you at the point of your need as a testimony to who he is and what he can do in our lives. If you have a need right now, lift a hand all across the house, a specific need. All right. I just want us to knock, seek, and ask right now. Join your, join your hearts with mine. Let's, let's bring our attention together. Lord Jesus, you see the needs that are represented here right now. We don't know all the details behind those needs, Lord, but I know you're looking to manifest your goodness here in this generation. It is your good pleasure to bless the people who manifest your kingdom. Bless the people who believe. Bless the people who honor you with their life. Lord, I pray for healing to those who are sick. I pray for deliverance to those who are oppressed. I pray for every individual facing dilemmas of employment, dilemmas of finances. Work among your people and let them testify in this house of what you've done for them. In Jesus' name. Somebody say that with me in Jesus' name. Now, before we continue, put your hands together, lift your voice. Let's give God a hand clap of praise. Amen. 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 We're honored to have Sister Linton here tonight. And we've been praying for Brother Linton, who's been in the hospital. This is uh, all of the Hodge kiddos' grandparents. And so, uh, Sister Linton has been at the hospital a lot lately. And uh, Dee Dee just brought her to church. I've been trying to get Dee Dee to bring sinners for years. And finally, she brought... <laughs> The, one of those righteous people, you know, I, I don't know. It's sinners, D.D., sinners. No, just having fun. Uh, we're honored, honored to have you here. You're a lovely person. One of our elders in the faith. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just want to give you honor. So, all right. Uh, all ministry happens within a moment, a, a cultural moment. All ministry. Somebody say, I'm a minister. I want to be a minister. I am a minister. We're striving. I say it that way because I, I am a minister, but I feel like there is, there is a, a higher place of knowledge, spiritual effectiveness. Um, and I, I'm sure you feel the same way. So many of you are hungry. I, I talk to you uh, during the week, and, and your testimonies remind me of just how hungry some of you are. Um, like, for example, Gwen, I'll pick on you. Forgive me for picking on you. Sunday, right over here, the Holy Ghost fell on her in such a powerful, amazing way. After church, she was trying to tell me, and she's just so moved in the, the power of the Spirit. So tonight, when, when her and John walked in the church, she told me out here, and I love the way you said it. She said, I've lived my whole life. I've raised kids and everything, and I've never felt anything like that. That's... It's just like a, a, a well springing up into everlasting life. Come on, somebody. So, all right, back on track. All ministry happens within a cultural moment. We are called to affect as much as possible the moment in which we are placed. God did not randomly lose you among the generations he placed you in such a time as this. And as a church, we are always in this tension that I, I think we need to show that we understand and then with discipline, not just with knowledge, but with discipline, 
In other words, many of us know things we ought to do, but oftentimes we don't have the discipline to do those things that we know. Not just with knowledge, but with discipline. We have to understand we are placed, God placed us in a time and a space. God invested you in this time because he thought you could make a difference if you would join the army of God. He thought you would be uniquely crafted and empowered to make a difference if you would enlist in the army of God. Not just as a consumer. But as a, as a soldier, as, a, as one who goes forward, as, as one who attaches uh, shoulder to wheel and pushes. And so all ministry happens within a cultural moment, and yet there's this tension within the church. There's this tension with all of our lives that to say it in a religious way, it goes like this. Uh, we are in this world, but not of this world. And we get that. We, we, we celebrate that. Um, it becomes part of our living witness, part of our testimony to this world that we're in this world but not of this world. And so uh, really these, these two different things, uh, the spirit and uh, the flesh, uh, the things of God, the things of this world, a life of giving, a life of receiving, uh, to be that which is given, uh, to be that which is uh, uh, receiving, uh, as Jesus would say, it's it's better to give than it is to receive. Uh, and on this kingdom, if in this kingdom of God, uh, we become literally the seed that falls to the ground and dies. And out of that death is a spiritual accomplishment. And although that is an image that we understand from the teaching of Jesus, living that out on a daily basis can sometimes be a challenge because there's this, this vagueness to it. And there's this, this kind of, okay, uh, now what sense that we have when we think about these things. Um, all of us as believers and every church can err in two different ways. We can, we can be so enamored by the world that they have more influence on us than we have on them. That's, that's certainly one path. Uh, the other path is to hold them in contempt. There's this tension. You can't reach people that feel your contempt. They will not receive anything from you. Uh, and it doesn't matter if you have an answer for them out of their own need of dignity and honoring their own sense of autonomy. Uh, they will not receive what we have if we have contempt for them. I don't know if we always love people, but we should try to like people. <laughs> it's hard to minister to people you don't like. And so that requires this continual uh, humbling of ourselves, a preferring of one another, a seeking after the heart of God, of seeing sin separate from sinner. Did you hear what I just said? Seeing sin separate from sinner. When you see a particular, everybody has a particular style of sin that doesn't just offend you spiritually, it offends you culturally. And um, you will have, if you're not careful, a sense of contempt toward those people and you'll turn your nose. That is just as carnal <laughs> as any sin of the flesh because you are holding the person at the level of contempt that you should have held the sin. God help us. God help us to be able to stand in assurance and upon solid, the solid rock of truth and the solid uh, rock of the gospel and, and not have a need to attack people in the, with the contempt or shame that we would apply to the sin itself. Now, that's one error. That is the error of, uh, I guess you could say, um, the person who almost, they, they, they don't want to involve themselves with people. They don't want to, they, they just want to 
kind of have a, a, a holy huddle and uh, just, just us good folks, I, I understand that. I, I really do. And as I get older, I understand it better and better. Um, the, other, the other error is that we're so impressed by the world that they're the ones influencing us. Uh, we're trading our, our fundamental essence. We're trading the nature of God that we claim transformed us to achieve something through the flesh that could only ever have been done through the spirit. So let me, let me, let me just say real quick, all culture, all ministry happens in a cultural, a historic, and a generational uh, a moment. And as a church, we have to be ready. I want to challenge all of you mature believers. Anything that's happening in uh, the public consciousness that people are concerned by or worried by, you should treat that as an invitation to at least a scripture or an invitation to at least what God would say about it. Because people are talking about it, you might as well be ready to inject something eternal into a world obsessed with the temporal. You see what I'm saying? So since all ministry happens in a moment, we as a church have to speak spiritual answers to the felt need of a generation or we talk to ourselves. Now this is true for all organizations. This isn't just, you're either sensing and responding to the felt need and starting there or there's no connection. First, there must be connection. After connection comes uh, trust. If you succeed at connection, you have a chance with trust. If you succeed with trust, you have a chance with influence. But if you fail at both connection and trust, it doesn't matter, you're talking to yourself. We have to understand we are anointed and we are sent. God believes in you, I believe in you. You are God's investment in your world. You need to believe that you can represent the values of heaven. You need to believe you can speak the word of God. Oh, come on, somebody. You need to believe that your voice, your prayers, your intercession can make a difference. You need to see this moment is not accidental, but God has placed you for such a time as this. So I, 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 with that in mind, I want to talk about something that is, is in our culture, and I, I want to show you um, how it is something the church can easily ignore, and, and I'm the first to be willing to ignore it. Um, but there is real popular in our society now this idea of a call-out culture. Um, in fact, my title tonight, my notes uh, actually uh, was organized today, so my notes are available to you if you want to download them. Uh, they're not really notes. They're more like a gathering of resources. Um, call-out culture is when people publicly shame one another to discipline a perceived wrong in another person. Uh, this is a form, this call-out culture. Now, if you're not really uh, up on news and pop culture, this, you may not know this, what's going on, but um, God bless you. I- I'm jealous. <laughs> uh, call-out culture is also referred to as outrage culture outrage culture, uh, where one group, one interest group, one set of students, one group of professors, one uh, gathering of politicians, they seek uh, to publicly humiliate another group in a manner 
that in some way pays them back for some perceived error, some perceived uh, problem. Uh, this, has been, this has been supercharged by social media and the ease with which we can call one another names thoughtlessly. We can wound one another carelessly. We can attack one another and then go on with our day as if it cost nothing to leave them bleeding. We, as a society, have learned to shame bullies while we have perfected bullying. And so this cultural moment, whether you call it call-out culture or you call it outrage culture or you call it a cancel culture, someone will make a mistake and then this whole subgroup will pile on them and accuse them of everything that you can imagine And uh, where do we, what does the church have anything to say about this? Is this just one of those emotional, cultural, social waves that, that, that flow through our generation and then they're gone and the church was focused on its kind of a small area over here or its area over here, its small area, and all of these larger things, we just kind of hope uh, they don't. Uh, they, they, they really don't come into the walls of the protected church. Um, one of my favorite columnists is a writer by the name of David Brooks. Um, he um, writes a column for the New York Times, and he tells a story a few months back about outreach culture, and I want to use it to tell you, a, tell you a story and then bring it full circle to what the Bible says about this. So um, I'm going to reference an article that he read. I copied it to the, the, your, your, the notes. He tells the story about a young woman by the name of Emily who was a a member of, she was a musician and her group was uh, punk. Uh, I guess punk rock is what it's called. And she had some uh, fame in uh, the part of Virginia she was at. And when she was 30 years old, she had been kind of really attracted to this call-out culture. It's, it's the illusion that you're, you're making a difference. It's the illusion that you know what's best, and you can retreat into your vanity and feel good about yourself by shaming other people. And she tells a story about how her best friend uh, was also in the music scene, and um, he had a woman accuse him of sending her um, an explicit photograph, and um, it, all his friends and all his bandmates stood up for him and said, no, that's, that's, not how he, uh, that's not how he operates. He wouldn't have done that. But she tells the story of how she was so attracted by the outrage culture and, and the call-out culture that she went public and she, she seethed on this other person whom she had never met's behalf and she, she wrote a, a Facebook post to all of her followers and fans and she denounced her former best friend as an abuser. She didn't know if he was. It just had been accusa- an accusation. Uh, she said this, quote, I disown everything he has done. I do not think it's okay. I believe women. And, and, and the post work, especially with it being uh, her, his friend, who came out and joined in this uh, social media tirade. Um, this friend of hers uh, was fired from his job. He was kicked out of his apartment. Uh, he had to move to a new city to avoid public shaming. And, and even when the article was written, uh, he was not doing well, and uh, they all knew it. And this so-called friend, Emily, she never spoke to him again, all right? She had thought she had done the, wrong, the, the right thing. But just a few months later, she too got called out. You see, something had happened 10 years before when she was in high school. 
another student, her high school had had this problem of, of cyber bullying in her high school. Uh, somebody had got a picture of one of the girls and she was uh, like partially undressed or something. And they posted this picture, this cyber bullying. And, and this girl, Emily, the girl who had called out her best friend, ruined her former best friend's life without facts, just trying to make right with imperfect knowledge and imperfect justice, wrongs that had been committed. Now the guns were pointed at her because you see, when this picture had been posted, cyberbullying, 10 years before, she had made a funny emoji as a teenager and had put it out making fun of a classmate. She became, once the attention of the ever so righteous and judgmental call out culture focused upon her she became the object of nationwide hate the post went viral this had happened when she was a teenager over a decade before she was banned from all of the music venues she stayed home and hid in her house for months her friends dropped her she was scared traumatized alone she tried to in, in, in disappear as it were one of the radio interview uh, programs found her and they were doing an uh, episode on this whole call out culture type uh, habit that our generation has got into they interviewed her and uh, she, said, she said this, it, it, it's entirely my life talking about what had been destroyed. She said, like, this is everything to me and it's all just like done and over. And she didn't even fight what they said about her. She said, I don't know what to think of myself other than like, I am so sorry and I do feel like a monster. This had happened 10 years before as a teenager. Let me, let me just remind everybody, if we get to a cultural place where teenagers can't make a mistake, there is no hope for nobody. Let me just say that again to this side of the church. If we get to the point where teenagers can't do dumb things, there is no hope for anybody. We're all going to die. <laughs> because teenager year, the teenage years, a.k.a. the period of painful, stupid mistakes, <laughs> is true to all of us. And um, she... She became a national example of how judgment and justice can be delicious to you when you're destroying someone else, but it can be the very picture of cruelty when it's destroying you. Um, the young man who had done to her what she had done to her best friend, his name was uh, Herbert, and this radio program found him and tracked him down. And they wanted to interview him, and uh, they asked him if he cared about the pain that Emily had endured. He said, no, I don't care. I don't care because it's obviously something you deserve, and it's something that's been coming. I literally do not care about what happens to you after the situation. I don't care if she's dead, alive, whatever. <clears throat> well, okay, I guess. Why don't you tell us how you really feel? Uh, so, David Brooks, the column goes, goes on, and he, he says this. You, you see how once you adapt a binary, in other words, good or bad, everything is good or bad, once you adapt that binary tribal mentality, us versus them, punk versus non-punk, 
victim versus abuser, you've immediately depersonalized everything and you've reduced complex human beings to simple good versus evil. You've eliminated any sense of proportion. And here's the problem. Abuse and judgment becomes a cycle that gets passed down. Do you see? You're the on one side of it or you're on the other side of it, but it's always getting passed down. This is hatred culture where you've done to me and now I look for opportunity to do to you. This is hatred culture. You hurt me and I'm just looking for an opportunity to hurt you. This is as old as humanity. We may do it now on social media. We may teach kids against bullying and then encourage bullying on social media. It's all of the same thing. There is within the human heart this war, this strife, this competitiveness, this me against you, this zero-sum mentality. If you're doing well, I'm, it must be hurting me somehow. If you're blessed, blessed, that means you're a criminal. <laughs> this competitiveness within the human heart that will destroy communities, it will destroy friendships, it will destroy schools, it will destroy communities, it will ultimately damage the very fabric of the society in which it is happening. This quest for justice, when done with the delusion that humans know justice, the Bible teaches Christians that we, we seek justice, but it's God's justice we seek. This quest for justice can turn into barbarism if it's not infused with a quality of mercy, an awareness, hear it, of human frailty and a path to redemption. The crust of civilization is thinner than you think. Now, I want to say something. When the unbelievers are saying we need redemption, the church is getting, the world is ready for introduction to Jesus Christ. I want to say that again because I want you to think about the consequences of it. When even the unbelievers are talking about redemption, you know the world is ready for an introduction to Jesus Christ. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us nailed him to the cross. All of our sins wounded him. And yet in spite of that, to the worst of us, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The church must be a place of redemption. We must celebrate redemption. We must speak redemption. We must believe that God's redemption is the healing balm of Gilead for a generation filled with rage. We live in an age of rage. I was uh, listening to a documentary here recently, and uh, they had done a political historical survey of the last three uh, political administrations, starting with uh, George W. Bush, who um, had, uh, they, literally, they literally documented how his, his theme was coming together, his theme was uh, finding the best attributes of, of respective parties, and he didn't want just conservatism, he wanted compassionate conservatism. Conservatism. He wanted the best. He wanted us to come together. And then uh, Barack Obama was elected, and his whole his whole theme was, you know, we can come together, we can transcend, and 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 uh, in spite of 
of, of the last of, of his theme. If you get to the end of George W's term, he is uh, the divide in American politics in spite of what everyone's saying is greater than ever. If you get to the end of Barack Obama's, uh, in spite of what he's saying about coming together, transcending difficult uh, national subjects uh, of every type, the nation is more divided. And now we are in this moment where everybody is sick of everybody. Everybody is sick of everybody. If ever was a generation that needs a reintroduction to redemption, it is this hour right now. It is this day that we are living in right now. There is something in the heart of humanity that loves to rage, loves to hate, loves to bully. And yes, this example I've used of call-out culture um, is is very effect, uh, very very uh, culturally relevant, and is is uh, very much a part of the daily news cycle. Yes, yes, this is our challenge. Uh, perhaps our, our 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 elders had a, a challenge of their time, and this kind of thing is our challenge. Can the church can the church be a message uh, of? Redemption in a society where even the unbelievers think that we could use a little redemption. This is our hour. This is our moment. We must see that in spite of the competition and the hatred of the human heart, there is an answer that has been given. There is a philosophical answer. There is a theological answer. There is a spiritual answer. There is a historical answer. And it is through what Christ has accomplished for us. And we become the, li- all right, I'm, I'm, let, me, let me stop. I'll, I'll preach you. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me move on. This whole call out culture, uh, it's, it's like former President Obama just spoke about this a, a few months back. And um, he said this, that I'm quoting him at a speech he gave. Um, if uh, call outs can give the illusion that you're affecting change even when that's not true. If I tweet or hashtag about how you didn't do something right or use the wrong word or verb, then I can sit back and feel pretty good about myself because, man, you see how woke I was. I called you out. And then he said, but that's not activism. So here's the reality. There's something in the human heart that is inclined to this. Let me give you some some research. Um, There is a dark psychology of social networks. For example, if you... If you make a tweet and you use the language of anger and you use words like shameful, there is 20% greater chance that that tweet will go viral than if you did not use the language of rage. Further, research on Facebook posts show if you post something that is not just disagreement, but is indignant. In other words, you thread your anger and your rage through it. It gets twice as many likes and twice as many shares as if you had just expressed an opinion as a personal a personal conviction. So this is the realm. This is the cultural moment. I don't know how all of this will come to come to fruition. And I do know how tempting it is for the church to get caught up in the rage cycle. I, I understand how tempting it is for the church to be caught up in the rage cycle. But I just want to, you guys are free to use media how you choose. I, I get that. I, I'm not your dad. But I just want you to see that oftentimes the people who seek to catch you in the rage cycle are using you 
They're just using you. So I think as Christians, we should be very, we should, we should be very careful about rage cycle reactions. Uh, why is that? Because the Apostle Paul gives us a list of things that will keep us out of heaven. Things like uh, immorality, uh, things like gross uh, moral and sexual transgression, and one of the things he mentions is railing, R-A-I-L-I-N-G, railing. He puts it right there besides heresy. He puts it right there beside all, all these transgressions where, you know, it, this, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. What is railing? Railing is to rebuke or shame somebody in an outraged manner. That's what relling is. Study your Greek. It is, to, it is to lose your cool with somebody. It is to rail upon them. These people of that, that style, Paul says, are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So look, we all, I'm not trying to be your dad. You're, you're grown. You're mostly grown. If you're not, you're grown enough to sit in here and listen to me teach for these 20 minutes I've been teaching. But this is what I want to say. Back up from that rage culture and understand that what will heal the world is not more of the flesh, but more of what Jesus Christ represented on Calvary. What will heal your family is not more outrage culture, but it will be gentleness. It will be the love of God. And when you are filled with the power of God, he doesn't make you better at outrage culture. He makes you gentle and long-suffering. Anyway, all right, moving along. The original call-out culture is not shaming people. It's about saving community. I'm going to give you the original call-out culture. You just can't get any more relevant than this, all right? This is the original call-out culture. Matthew 18 and 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go tell him, his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained a brother. Somebody say gained a brother. The original, the original call out culture was, had a different goal. It was to gain a brother, not shame a brother. I'm going to say that over here because I can tell y'all love me more than that side does. The original call-out culture was to gain a brother, not to shame a brother. There is a place for calling out. There is a place for the, the, the careful review of actions done that were inappropriate. There is a place. Go to them. Tell your fault with them. If he hears you, you have gained a brother. If he doesn't, Go to the community. Ask for adjudication. This is appropriate. And by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Here's the truth. We're not going to agree on everything. There are some things we just will never know for sure what the right thing was. That, that's, that's, let's, let's be grown up about that, okay? There's just some things we're not going to, to agree about. And there are certain subjects that are dangerous because they exist with great pain below the surface. And those dangerous subjects should if you have any wisdom at all, it should make you speak very carefully <laughs> and make you speak very slowly because it doesn't take more than a match to burn your whole stinking house down. 
And so there are some subjects that are so filled with pain uh, that, that we, we err on the side of speaking less. We err on the side of speaking slowly. We take absurd care sometimes because James said at Beth's, your, your tongue is like a fire. It's, it's, your tongue, Paul says, is, is lit with the fires of hell. And it just runs around and burns everything down and makes your whole life miserable. That's why not many people should be teachers, James says. They don't know when to shut up. They just talk about everything. Y'all should read my book. I just do a whole chapter about that. I, I want you to see how uh, there are, there, there is disagreement, but the goal is always to gain a brother. The goal is always to gain a sister. And so if you want to be mature, and if I want to be mature, and someone either brings accusation or brings fault or brings hurt, the first thing we have to do, hear me, is to humble ourselves. Why is that important? It's because even if they're wrong and you're right, there's a right way to handle it. Let me say that again. Even if they're wrong and you're right, there's a right way to handle it. And if we just get into this, I told them, and this shame call out culture, it's like James said, the very fires of hell are burning on our tongue and we lose friendships we've had for years and we hurt people we love and we destroy relationships. There's a better way to live. I said, there's a better way to live. The goal is to gain a brother, to gain a sister, not to share shame a brother or shame a sister. Let me, let, me, let me use this as a teaching example on this issue of, 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 of I think you're wrong, I'm right, I'm right, you're wrong, whatever, we're disagreeing on any subject. Um, we we want to be careful in, in these subjects. We want to we look at the whole of what the Bible says. Why? Because all spiritual truths are, truths are held in tension. Why is that? Because seeing through the flesh, it's like seeing through a glass darkly. In the ancient world, mirrors were very, very difficult. Windows were very, very difficult. And so if you had a mirror, you might see some general shape of yourself and you look like a wild person or something. If you tried to look through a window, it would just be, it would be very, very... Uh, they didn't have glass. They had polished silver. Um, and so you, you get the idea. Um, that's what Paul is saying. Uh, because I cannot see the whole of God, I, I have this narrow view and God is infinite. I have this, 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 this narrow view. And so when I look at judgment, I really don't have the width of wisdom to also hold mercy. And so when I'm preaching judgment, it sounds like no one's going to be saved, right? Right? Okay, so then when I get over here to mercy, you know, God's infinite. He's horizon to horizon, sea to sea, sky to sky. That's God. And here's me. And so I looked at over here, I was on judgment, ain't nobody getting saved. Then I come over here to mercy, all you dirty dogs are going to make it to heaven. You're like, well, didn't you contradict? All spiritual truths are held in a dynamic supernatural tension. That's why it can sound like Jesus is speaking in opposition to himself because he's given insight to the spiritual world, not the carnal world. And we see limited. That's why you look when there's any subject, you don't just pick your favorite scripture. I mean, you do if you kind of, you know, just want to be grumpy about it. But if you want to have understanding, you have to look at everything the Bible has to say on that. As a Bible student, my goal is never to, never to try to argue away a scripture, why that's in there. I, ne- never to try to infinite, well, this is the one that really matters, and well, that one doesn't matter about as much. Or over here, you know, Peter was confused. No, 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 that's bad scholarship. These things are held in tension, and so we see 
all of these passages on dealing with resolving one another's uh, disagreements. And, and so I, I'm going to give you a bunch of scriptures. They're all on your notes. They all serve as cross-references. Um, in many of the cases, because there's a good number of them, there's not the whole story there. There's just a, gives you a reference that you can, you can look at. Let me, let me look at Leviticus 19, verse 17. You must not harbor hatred against your brother in your heart. Directly rebuke your neighbor so that you will not incur guilt on account of him. What's he talking about? The the point here is not how to get along with people. The point is harboring hatred. You see, that's the point. That's the subject. You must not harbor hatred in your heart. The second point is an example to it, as if to say, this is the subject. It would be better for you to have open confrontation than for you to harbor uh, hatred in your heart. Hell is the expert at helping us hide bitter feelings and hatred. And then like Cain, we plot against our brother. And when our opportunity comes, our hands are red. Proverbs 25 and 9, argue your case with your neighbor without betraying another person's confidence. Even when you're fighting with someone, there's a right way to do it. My goodness, if I get a big amen from this side of the church over here. Thank you. Even when you're fighting, there's a right way to do it. And if you do it the wrong way, it won't matter if you were right. Wounds still follow. Matthew 18 and 14, in the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones shall perish. Keep going, dropping down to verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus said, what? That's not what Jesus said. But in the Nathaniel version, it says something like, oh, no, you didn't. No, that's not what it says. Seventy times seven. Okay, seven is a number of perfect, perfection or a number of completion. Uh, Luke 17 and three, um, watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Somebody say, I love that part. Uh, yeah, you know you do. All right, but you don't get to stop right there. There's another part to that verse. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. It's so much easier to rebuke than it is to forgive. <sighs> 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, I'm almost done, musicians, you can come. Though I am free of obligation to anyone, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. We are preferring them and their feelings to us and our feelings. And I want to be honest with you, Christian culture is so tempted to be involved in this outrage. Christian culture, it is so tempting for us to get involved in this outrage because there are people who they will promote the craziest things. And if we respond in fear and insecurity, we'll get sucked into this outrage culture. And here is Paul saying, look, I bent over backwards. I did everything I could do. I acted as though I was a slave. That I just wanted to tell them suckers off. But I didn't. It nearly killed me. <laughs> I'm entertaining myself now, y'all. Forgive me. That I might win as many as possible. Galatians 6 and 1. Brothers, if someone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. That's not outrage culture. But watch yourself or you also may be tempted. 2 Thessalonians 3.15. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Titus 3 and 10. Reject a devices man after the first and second admonition. We love that one. And if that was the only thing the Bible said about it. 
we would be done. But no, it's all held in tension. James 5, 19. My brothers, if one of you shall wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, I'll let you read it in your own time. All right, moving on. Matthew 18, 35. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Can you feel the tension? We live right in the middle of that tension. If a, Leviticus 6, 2 through 7, if a soul sin and commit a trespass against the Lord and lie unto his neighbor in that which was delivered him to keep or in fellowship, or in a thing taken away by violence, or hath deceived his neighbor? You want to know how that one ends? It's in your notes. Luke 17, 3 and 4. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. If he repent, forgive him. Leviticus 9, and on, and on, and on, and on. Proverbs 11 and 30. The fruit of the righteousness, the, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. Romans 12, 21. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. First Corinthians, well, these are all passages uh, that I, I copied and paste from uh, some of my study resources. Here's the thing. The body of Christ is directed to live out a certain manner of being. And the evidences that are given to us are clear in the Bible. You don't get to make up your own evidences of spiritual life when we have clear lists of them in the New Testament. That is the signs that we have the fruit of the Spirit growing in our life. We are called to be these kind of people. We, we can believe all things but be wise as serpents. Do you feel the tension? To be a model of loving, truth-seeking community, even when we're online, even when we're on social media. We will not restore trust by shouting at or shaming voices who push back or rush to judgment. We will only do it by offering a steady, somebody say steady, faithful, somebody say faithful, witness over time, living our lives, filling our social media feeds in a way that proved that we as the church can be trusted. So here's the thing. Your neighbor can behave himself in a way that even if you agree with him, you think he's a jerk. Or your neighbor can behave in such a way that even if you disagree with him, you're glad he's your neighbor. Yes, the moment and going into the political silly season, it's going to get worse. The moment of outrage, the moment of railing has been as strong as any time in my lifetime. And even the unbelievers are saying, we could use a little bit more mercy, a little bit more redemption. I want to stand up and say, look, I just want to say as a, as a Christian that the life Jesus lived models better than any other person, subject, philosophy, or history of all the human story of how we can be remade, how there is repentance, how there is a divine washing. And whatever you've come through, there's not just survival, but there's healing. And that's what this generation needs. This generation has entertainment, but it doesn't have a lot of empathy. <laughs> this generation has a lot of experiences, but it doesn't have a lot of relationships. It is a relationally poor 
generation. And here's the church. And if we can open our hearts, not as the fearful and insecure, but as the strong and the ordained of God, then our ability to make a difference in our system, man, I got to quit. I'm just going on and on. We'll go to the next level. I want to speak to you in the name of Jesus. And I want to say this to you. God believes you can make a difference in your generation. So he placed you there. God believes your testimony could make a difference in the place where you work. God believes your kindness could transcend all the fear and rage of this political moment. The church could be the church. I said the church could be the church. I'm going to say it again. The church could be the church. Yes, the church is tempted to get right in the midst of outrage culture. We have the things we would prefer. We have the things we like. We have the things that make us feel safe. But the moment we do it like them, they write us off. There's no difference. Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, I speak your promises over this community. You have told us that there would be an end-time revival that would be on anything that has even happened before. And when we look, Lord Jesus, at the tremendous revivals that happened, we're filled with amazement. But we want to stand on your promise and believe that the latter-day harvest could be even greater than the former. So however you bring revival into our communities, oh God, just use us as hands and feet, we pray, oh God. However you want to bring through and break this log jam of, of, of this, this so much culture anger and uh, division however that happens Lord we'll leave that with you it's above our pay grade but Lord Jesus let us be the, the, the venue through which your anointing flows let first church be a place where people come and find spiritual sanctuary let this community be a place where people can come together and not disagree but find where we agree and having laid everything else aside we can celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ and speak the healing balm of to a generation that's broken. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us.